Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we're joined by Steve Pacheco, President and CEO of the American Advertising Federation. Steve is tasked with designing a future-forward organization consistent with the changes impacting the advertising landscape. Steve joined the AAF from Ducks Unlimited, where he was Chief Marketing Officer. He has 30 years of industry experience, more than 20 of which were spent at FedEx as Director of Advertising and Sponsorship Marketing. There, he produced award-winning work including 12 Super Bowl commercials, FedEx Cup, NFL, and NASCAR ad campaigns. He worked for International Paper as Director of Advertising and Marketing Communications, where he directed their 1996 Summer Olympic sponsorship. He was also a partner in a Memphis-based advertising and design agency, Humphreys, Inc. Steve is the first AAF president and CEO to have held leadership roles at every level of the organization, beginning at the collegiate level, president of Memphis Advertising Federation, and chairman of the AAF National Board of Directors in 2011. In 2013, he received the AAF Barton A. Cummings Gold Medal Award and was named the Advertising Club of New York's Advertising Person of the Year. Good morning, Steve, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Hi, Mary. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted that you are joining us this morning. Really glad to be here. I I find the topic very interesting and and, a follow-up from our earlier conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. Yes. Yeah, so, so we met at a, a, a regional a West Tennessee American Advertising Federation meeting. You came all the way out to see us in West Tennessee, which was a real treat. And hearing you talk about your work in the field of advertising and in particular, your passion for helping young professionals, I thought you would be a perfect addition for our listeners to hear what you think about the future of work and how we can have healthy work environments. Love it. Let's get started. All right. But I'd like to start with just finding out more about you. Can you tell us about the first job you ever had? Oh, gosh. Um, In high school, I think I sold Craftsman tools at Sears because that was, you know, I felt like I needed some retail experience or dealing with the public. And I went in there on a Saturday afternoon and applied for a job. And I think I think Later that day, they put me to work. They, they needed some help right away. So I kept coming back and, and um, just learned a lot about life in general by dealing with the public on a regular basis, by being in a retail environment, Craftsman Tools, you know, a, a big name brand that, that has a lot of clout with it. And, you know, everything from do-it-yourself home projects to these professional contractor, uh, you know, heavy-duty dudes that would come in there needing the tools. And it just taught me a lot about human behavior, about the retail experience and about psychology, if you will. What do you remember that sort of stood out to you about those interactions with um, the general public selling tools? Well, I think two things. One, you know, I was a, I was a high school kid, so people didn't expect me to know much about it. But I kind of threw myself into it and wanted to learn everything I could about every tool. And they, they'd come with these little manuals. And I think I was probably the only sales guy there that read them from cover to cover because I wanted to know, you know, know about the product. So I can speak pretty knowledgeably, and I, I think people were taken aback by the fact that here's a kid who really knows this stuff, and it helped me sell a lot of tools. And then when I found out that I could be on commission, that really amped up my uh, desire to learn more about the tools. And then, <laughs> and then I started doing really, really well and you know made more than just a little bit of high school spending money. And so I learned early on the value of a dollar and the fact that, that you could uh, increase your chances of making more money by being better prepared. That is that is a really interesting lesson. And I also like 
how you started off with talking about craftsmen and you know, so you already have people come in, they want a good tool. And so they're automatically going to this brand. And then not only does the brand have it, but then you as the salesperson can come alongside and say, yeah, this is why you want this tool instead of a wrench from a different brand. Yeah. And, you know, way back when Sears was the first to do a lifetime warranty. So any craftsman tool that broke or had a defect, you could bring it back in and replace it right away with no questions asked. And that for me was also part of the the job is just to learn by, you know, what what kind of tools got abused, what kind of things were self-inflicted breaks versus just, you know, mechanical breaks from the tool side of things. And and it just taught me again a lot about human behavior. Did that sort of set your trajectory to go into advertising by seeing the power um, a, a particular brand has, or was that just sort of accidental to where you ended up going in your career? I think largely it was accidental, but but the brand preference, you know, I've, I've always studied brands and, and human psychology and why people buy what they buy and prefer what they prefer and, and all that. So I think a lot of it was wrapped around, you know, two big brand names. Sears at the time commanded a huge part of the retail marketplace. This is way back in the 70s, by the way. So, you know, they, they were a big power player. And then they had a lot of other powerful brand names within Sears, but but Craftsman itself you know, almost immediately set the tone that it was high quality, worth the money you paid for it, you know, better than just these knockoff name, not name brand tools. And I, and I think people really appreciated that. And, and I saw it as a huge advantage in the marketplace. The power of a brand name could really make a, a meaningful difference in a, in a retail environment. How were you treated there by your, your fellow associates and the management? Was that a good experience or not so great? You know, it was, I, again, I was one of the youngest people there and they thought I was like a stock boy or worked in the back. But when I convinced them that I could sell with the best of them, you know, I think I think that earned a little bit of respect and they started treating me better. A little bit of hazing going on because you're the new kid and because, you know, the folks that have been doing this for quite some time. And, you know, <laughs> I guess I earned the right to be able to hang out in the break room with them and, and talk shop and everything else. But uh, you had to earn your respect there in the job and you had to make sure that people understood that you were there for all the right reasons and that you weren't a threat to anyone. So how did you find yourself into the world of advertising? How did, did you major in advertising in college? I did. Well, actually I majored in journalism. They did not have an advertising track major at, uh, at Memphis State University, which is now the University of Memphis. And again, I was always drawn to ads that I saw, you know, in the marketplace. Also, compelling psychological experiments where people were trying to trying to you know figure out why people acted in such a way what made people prefer one product over another just all the all the psychology classes I took uh, in college led me to that and just just the human psychology of why people choose what they do was very very fascinating to me uh, I was intellectually curious and I always wanted to find out more about why people chose what they did and also just, you know, had seen my own favorite ads and, and tried to tear them down and break them apart and figure out why they were constructed the way they were, how they were designed to persuade somebody to make the pick one over the other. Just just all that inside baseball stuff for the ad business I was fascinated by. Your interest in psychology, how is that translated into work environments and seeing what motivates people to work and good work environments and difficult, not so great work environments? Well, I think for me personally, it's it's always been about 
you know, seek first to understand and, and figure out who you're dealing with and, and size up a person. And, and I mean that in all the right ways, just, you know, where they're coming from, what their story is, how they're wired, uh, what their motivation is. The, the more you know about somebody, the better you can craft a message for them, obviously. But also, you know, in a management or a leadership role, uh, if you know an awful lot about somebody, you can probably manage them better or to a degree that they, they like to be managed. Uh, and get the best productivity out of them. So, so I've always been really good at reading people and understanding a little bit about how they're how they're wired and, and what motivates them, and then just address that head on. I think it's really interesting because a lot of workplace conflicts come around through miscommunication, and you know the boss or whoever thinks they've communicated, the worker thinks they've communicated. And maybe they've said the words or used the body language, but there has been a disconnect with the communication. And as you're talking, you know, about understanding curiosity, the more you get curious about the person that you are working with, communicating with, then the better you can craft a message to actually be understood, right? Because communication isn't just about saying words. It's about what does the other person hear and how are they understanding that to whether or not we have actually communicated? Yeah, absolutely true. And and fundamentally, you know, when you're advertising, you're, you're typically advertising to the masses, but I'm a big believer in personalization and people responding better to, you know, messages that are more targeted or more customized to them and their own behaviors and all. And I really do believe that, that that is a meaningful difference maker when you're, when you're crafting ads. So you're the president and CEO of AAF. And that's a big job. And personalization with the people that you work with takes time, right? Being in the management business is largely being in the people business. And the particularity that you're talking about is takes time to invest to know who you're, the people that you work with. So how do you balance the demands of your job with the time it takes to really know the people that, that work with you and for you? Yeah, it's the American Advertising Federation. The AAF is is made up of about 160 ad clubs all across the country, and we're particularly strong in the heartland uh, and in the Midwest for whatever reason. So, the the bulk of our clubs are are uh, are based right in the middle of the country. And and remember two things: one is that the American Advertising Federation serves all anyone and everyone involved in the profession of advertising at any level can be a member of the AAF. So we've got five to 6,000 college students that are members of AAF. Uh, we've got a lot of advertising agencies. We've got clients and brands. We've got ad tech and innovation companies, programmatic advertising. We've got media companies. We've got, you know, printers and sign makers, content creators, you name it. And that, that mashup of <laughs> wildly different perspectives and backgrounds and skill sets and personalities just trying to get your your head around all that is daunting most days. Um, and that's that's our membership base. I'm not even talking about our staff yet, which is a, a small but mighty team of 16 individuals who uh, come together to make the, the network work for all of our members. And so I, I, my, my philosophy is simple. It's people first. I take care of my staff and my people as best I can. And I am one of them. We all get along really, really well. We just came off a very intense week for our national conference where we were morning, noon, and night together, you know, for, for five straight days. And um, I'm happy to report that there was no drama. There were no conflicts. There was no, you know, trouble uh, within the team. And somehow we serviced, you know, almost 500 attendees at our national conference, and they all walked away with a really, really good experience. 
uh, and learn something new about the incredibly dynamic world of advertising. So I, I put the energy where it needs to be placed, which is in making sure that my team feels seen and heard and valued uh, each and every day. We treat everyone with dignity and respect. Our, our mantra is that the AF is the unifying voice for advertising. And so we're uniters, not dividers. And so we have to take a unified approach where we can to represent the entire advertising industry. Uh, that's why we're based in Washington, D.C. A lot of the work that we do is to make sure that the advertising industry's voice is heard at a national level for policymakers and lawmakers and legislators. And so, you know, that's a lot of that's a lot of work for any one position. But um, I have endless and boundless energy. So I, I throw a lot of a lot of enthusiasm and energy at that. And again, it, it comes down to just respecting the person and their values and their belief systems and making sure we all get along really well. I can imagine a lot of listeners, myself included, would love to work for a leader who really believes that and practices that people first, because as you know, when you take care of your people, then they're they're free to be even better and be better at their jobs and the, they flourish. And so the organization flourishes. Was this modeled to you? Did you have some mentors that really embodied what could happen when you treat your workers well, the way that you've described? Sure, of course. Uh, you know, I, I spent 30 years in corporate America working for um, two Fortune 100 companies, and I learned good and bad from those companies. Uh, and the best lessons I learned were from my 20 plus years at, at FedEx. Their mantra there is people, service, profit. If you hire the right people, they'll deliver outstanding service, which will result in great profit. So you can go back and hire more great people and the, and the cycle continues. And, and um, you know, the, the founder and, and leader of FedEx, Fred Smith, was a great leader by all accounts. And I learned a ton by being near him for 20 plus years. No finer leader in American business or global business for that matter. And just, you know, really, really walk the walk and talk the talk about taking care of his team and his people and making sure that they felt valued. And, and you know, there are little case studies written about that. And, and he's earned the right to be able to say that uh, with a ton of credibility and respect. And so I learned a lot about managing people at FedEx. The, the added layer there, Mary, is that you've got people from almost every country in the world represented as part of the workforce. You've got different cultural values and norms. You've got different sensitivities and personalities, just a lot of things you have to be on the lookout for constantly so that you're carrying yourself the right way and, and not being disruptive to the flow of the work. How did you manage that? You're bound to have conflict. I mean, conflict isn't bad. Uh, it's the unmanaged conflict. So when those miscommunications happen, given culture, dynamics, personality, how did you manage those issues? Well, you know... Uh, <laughs> My grandfather used to say the best fight is the one you don't get into at all, right? And and I'm a big believer in that. And so conflict avoidance is a big part for me. And and I learned early on, I, I was always enthusiastic and energized, but I've learned uh, later in life that it's better to, to take it all in before you comment. You know, sometimes uh, youthful enthusiasm needs to be tempered a little bit and you, you want to just pop off and say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, and as I've matured, uh, and I don't think I'm there yet, by the way. As I've matured, <laughs> I've learned that sometimes it's better to to check yourself and and make sure that what you're going to say is is accurate. It's factual. It's not hurtful to anyone. It's not going to start a, a firestorm anywhere, and that it's helping the case along instead of you know going on an off ramp. 
uh, about at FedEx, it was all about efficiency. And so you didn't want to waste any time. And so you wanted to find the best course of action that added up to the efficient way to deal with everything. And a lot of times that's just hearing people out, making sure that they felt heard and seen and, and then moving on with the right solution. But part of that just comes down to not overreacting and not jumping in without thinking through your thought process. Yeah, absolutely. When we think about efficiency, sometimes think okay, people think, okay, let's just get this done. Let's get this done and go to the next thing. But you actually save time if, as you just said, you slow down, you hear people out, you don't jump to conclusions, you don't just, um, the first thought that comes to your mind. So if you adequately prepare and and your way of preparing is that I'm going to stop and take stock and be thoughtful and get whatever information I need and then act, that is efficient, right? You are going to de-escalate a situation uh, and uh that's really, I, I absolutely agree with you. That's the best the best way to do it. The best way to deal with the conflict is to stop and take stock and then yeah, and what, not what, from your passion. Exactly. And what I worry about, Mary, is that in this day of you know instant gratification and demanding time traps, it's, it's really hard to carve out time to really just sit still and be thoughtful of everything that's going on and, and you know, hit the pause button for a minute and really rethink everything. Everybody just wants to get an instant answer and, you know, in real time, know where their order is and everything else. And sometimes you can't have everything instantly and you, you need to really spend some time and think about things. You really do. Yeah. My little mantra is that conflict is normal and expected. Let's deal with it. So if we know we're going to have conflict, uh, we know that management is the people business essentially, then we should prepare. So I know conflicts are going to come my way. So how am I going to deal with it? I'm going to deal with it by being reflective. And so you build it into your schedule because if you're too busy, that's a problem, right? You want to be properly busy, uh, but if you're too busy, then you need to stop and say, this is, this is a recipe for disaster and things are not going to work as well. If Do I need to hire someone? Do I need to have somebody else be doing this? Do I need to reimagine what my work is really about if I am too busy to be a thoughtful, reflective leader? Or even if you're not a, a leader by title, being thoughtful and reflective so that you can do your best work and not burn out. Absolutely true. And, and you know, back to your point about we all get the same 24 hours in a day and, and the the less of that time that you corrupt with with things that aren't productive and that aren't going to lead to the right results or, you know, wasted time. And I'm, I'm not about wasting anything, but especially time, which is, you know, the most precious commodity that we all have. And so I may just need to hit pause and say, let me think about this for 10 minutes and and get back to you rather than just giving you an instant answer. And, and you know, you got to be careful about that because it shows a vulnerability sometimes. And, and I think we were all raised on the fact that, you know, an instant decision shows leadership or, or skills or whatever. And sometimes that's true, certainly. One of the best business books I ever read was, was Blink, you know, which is, is Malcolm Gladwell's commentary that if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, you're an expert. Right. And so uh, I would listen to that person with a lot more credibility than I would somebody that's been doing it for a year or two, right? And so... I promise you I've spent more than 10,000 hours thinking about advertising issues and and most decisions I make on advertising issues I can make pretty quickly but when it comes to people matters and and conflict and and avoidance of all that too sometimes it is better to take your time and hit a beat and and really think things through. The Society for Human Resource Management estimates that the US economy hemorrhages over 44 billion dollars a year 
in toxic work environments. And there are other estimates that are higher than that. That's a lot of wasted money and time and energy. And it's astounding to me. I mean, I know why people don't deal with conflict because it's psychologically difficult for them. Absolutely. I understand that. But it's such a waste. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy, waste of money. And the damage, the real damage it does to individuals is um, is just, it's just really awful what can happen to people at work. And so I'm very interested in preventative, like sort of preventative healthcare and work environments. How do we prevent that? How do we prevent the human organizational damage that happens with unmanaged conflict? And if, if leaders could see that they will have more time if they deal with something now, by now, within a reasonable time frame, than thinking it will magically go away, it just causes more problems. Well, absolutely. And, and you hit on it, Mary, you know, the word human needs to be front and center. We're not machines. We're all human beings. And, and uh, again, back to my earlier point about everybody's wired differently. If I know more about what, um, persuade you to act in a certain way, I can certainly address that or, or, you know, come together with the same mentality that you bring to the table. And and I think we can work things out. It's, it's, you know, it's a matter of just respecting and appreciating everyone's background, valuing every human that's there and, and respecting, you know, the work that they do and everything else. And, and that takes time. It's not an instant fix. You know, it's not a transactional thing where you're just placing your order at a quick serve restaurant and, and you know, that's all the transactions are going to be. That's that's why McDonald's is installing kiosks now. You know, they, they're tired of their people getting uh, berated. And again, my first job was in retail. I, I've been on the other end of that. It's not fun or pretty. And so, you know, part of their answer is we'll put a machine in here. You punch the buttons and, and insert your credit card and you're never going to have to deal with a human. And I, I worry a lot about that. That's not that's not necessarily where I want to be going forward because you're going to lose that human aspect. I love that. I mean, that word transactional is uh, conscious of so many images for me. And when we try to think about our work environments as transactional, then we're definitely going to have a breakdown of communication. Because again, what something means to me versus what something means to you, therefore a communication breaks down. And I say, but I said it or but you knew it, or you're supposed to be professional, thinking that we all have the same way of processing information. We all hear the same things because we value the same things. And if we realize that's not the case, and uh, I know you guys have been working on DEI initiatives, and I'm just so grateful for a new time and work where we really start thinking about belonging. What does that look like for an organization? Because it's the right thing to do because it treats humans well, but it's also good in order to keep businesses afloat, right? Keeping people, treating people as individuals, as you started with saying, how do we, how do we do that? How, do you have any advice for how we really embed this desire for actual belonging and diversity within organizations? Well, I'll take that from the the angle of which I do know about, which is the, the dynamic business of advertising. And, and, you know, there are a lot of transactional things that happen in advertising. It's, it's, you know, I'm going to give you this money and I'm going to buy this ad space. And that's, that's very transactional. I, I've always thought about advertising as more of a true partnership and that partnership can be between the agency and the client, for instance, that's the most normal one. The, the power shift is on the client because they control the budgets and the spend and, and, you know, the tone 
the agency is is often seen as just a, a a vendor or a supplier or somebody who helps make the stuff happen for the client. And and you know, early on in my career uh, managing one of the world's top ad agencies, I realized that we got better work and it all seemed to flow better when it was a true partnership and we shared in the good news and the bad news that came out of all that. So to set expectations up front and say, we're all going to do great on this campaign and we're all going to give it our best. Let's just find the right way to strike that balance and, and make sure that we all are serving, you know, the greater good here and, and that we're going to have work that we can all be very, very proud of. And and that worked very, very well for me for 20 years. Um, and, and part of that is placing your ego to the side and not having it be about you uh, and more and more, Typical ad clients aren't that way or wired that way. They want all the all the glory themselves. There's this new term called rock star CMOs, which are the chief marketing officers for these big name companies with these huge budgets who just want to see themselves on stage and, and you know, get their name in the headlines all the time. And very seldom will they share uh, the accolades and the awards and the recognition, and the acknowledgement of the folks that actually did the work. And so I'm, I'm a big believer in, in sharing all of that going into it as a partnership and making sure that people feel like they've got, you know, uh, skin in the game and that they also want to make sure that, that they're feeling uh, honored and valued as part of the process. And that's Mm -hmm. worked really, really well for me. Now to your, to your point in the advertising business, it's also, you know, (laughs) a lot of egos and a lot of, a lot of people that are looking to get their name in lights there. And that's a delicate balance too, because you have to, you have to be careful about all that. And make sure no one person gets more spotlight or shine than the other than the other team members, and that's very very tricky. And then in, indeed, you know, you're seeing a, a, a huge move towards with diversity and inclusion in the advertising industry, and we're a big part of all that. We take a lot of pride in that. We've still got a lot of work to do, but we are trying to make the advertising industry a lot more inclusive. Uh, we're seeking out other perspectives and viewpoints from. Uh, other backgrounds, and, and we're trying to form, you know, the perfect advertising relationship that would be all inclusive and show all the different perspectives that are that we're advertising to and that we're advertising for. And and that's really really hard work and really really tricky. Uh, and it also comes with some built-in conflicts from time to time. Uh, and sometimes the loudest voice wins, but but oftentimes if we put all that aside and, and park those differences at the door and just try to figure out what's going to motivate everybody to do the right thing, we, we get to a good result. I would think that's really hard in your industry, balancing competition and cooperation and collaboration, because there is this inherent competition built in, right? People are vying for not only their idea, but then their agency to win whatever the bid is, whatever they're trying to do. But, you know, Rome's not built by one person. It really most things are collaboration and maybe somebody is more dominant in that process. Maybe it was their initial idea, but it seems to me if we want the best campaign, if we want the best organization, it is really speaking in and, and, and acknowledging all the people who are participating. So I don't know how you do that because our culture loves rock stars <laughs> clearly, right? No, how, how do you have any ideas of how to balance that? Well, I don't. I, if I did, it'd be the silver bullet answer, right? And, and and I think we're all seeking the right answers now, and it's it's really really hard. And there's a lot of noise that's that's beating some of that down. So I don't I don't have the answer for you, Mary. I wish I did. The other the other side of that is that 
we have to work as an industry to figure out the right the right path forward and one that's predicated on you know honoring the culture and the of the industry not just a single effort or a single viewpoint or again back to my comment about whoever has the loudest voice typically wins that's that's not good for the industry and it's going to run away a lot of young people who may consider it a destination for their career because they're going to see all the ugliness and not want to be a part of it you know young people these days care deeply about purpose-driven organizations and about mission-focused organizations and they want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And as an industry, we've got we've got a lot of work to do in making sure that we're not only saying that, but backing it up and, and making advertising, media and marketing a destination career uh, for a lot of young people that could go anywhere. You said well, on your website, it says that one thing that you are doing is that you are tasked with designing a future forward organization consistent with the changes impacting the advertising landscape. That sounds like a huge piece of work. And when I think about advertising, I mean, all the ethical challenges that are just sort of latent in advertising, and then the landscape that we find ourselves in is so changing and shifting. How, how do you approach this? Appreciate you recognizing that, Mary. And it's actually even more difficult than you might uh, imagine because three things that work here. One is that we're a 100-year-old trade organization that's based in Washington, D.C., and with that comes all the baggage of being a hundred year old trade organization. It's, it's, you know, we do not want to conduct business the same way we did in 1915 when we were founded, that's not good for anybody. And so when I was brought in four short years ago, it was to be a change agent and to really make the American advertising federation relevant for these times. Now, nobody knew these times were going to include a global pandemic and all the other chaos that went with that, including some economic headwinds. And, and, you know, I'm not I'm not fearful of storms. I've been through, like I said, 30 years of corporate America. It takes a lot to shake me to my core, and I haven't I haven't been shaken yet. So we're still fighting the good fight. The, the dynamics of today's advertising business is such that just staying current is no longer enough. You've got to think out three, five, seven years from now where people are going to be investing their advertising dollars, where the budgets are going to go, what types of platforms are going to be there. You know. Uh, You've got to realize Facebook, Snapchat, TikTok, these things all have happened within the last 20 years. TikTok within the last seven years. And and look at what a you know what a huge base of people go to TikTok each day now. That that wasn't even around, you know, seven short years ago. And so what is the next TikTok gonna be? What is the next thing gonna bring us? And what we'll we be talking about in 2030, which is seven short years away. And and so I have to also lock myself in a room every once in a while and think about the future and where everything is headed. And by the way, nobody's got a good answer to that. Um, it's all it's all just, you know, somebody's best guess or ideas of things. Even the most learned and scholarly people can't predict with great accuracy where we're headed with all this. And so you've got to you've got to really be spending a lot of time talking to those that are helping form the future. That's why we've got a lot of ad tech and innovation companies on our board at the American Advertising Federation. I want to hear from those leaders exactly where they think things are headed and then make my own judgment from that. But also, you know, what what the young people of today are going to be working on mid-career and early career for them and what they're going to find interesting and, and worthwhile to spend their time and energy on. And so that's not easy to predict. 
uh, and we don't always get it right, but we're trying really, really hard to figure out what's new and what's next and what's going to happen in the world of advertising, media, and marketing to the best of our abilities and, and be there for it and be able to represent that part of the industry to all the constituents that we serve. That's that's really good to hear because I know that one thing that breeds conflict is uncertainty. And if the, the future is uncertain for all of us. Nobody knows. Of course, if we were having this conversation in, Jan- in January of 2020, right? If we only knew what was just about around the corner with the pandemic. But, you know, now AI has popped up, which has been around for a while, but we don't know where that's going to go. And that breeds in a lot of different fields uncertainty, which can, you know, and then you feel maybe there's scarcity and that can cause all these sorts of unnecessary conflicts that can, you know, spin out of control personally and within organizations if not managed. And so to try to help people deal with the uncertainty in your field that is just changing so so greatly is there do you have any words of advice for people either just starting out or those managers to help people in your industry to deal with this change in a productive way well i'll say this most people like predictability yes uh and i, and I don't mean that as a as a slam i mean you know you can get into a routine that is not healthy but most people really respect predictability because it's not chaos theory, right? And then right. the last three years, we've been living through chaos theory and, and not everybody enjoys it or deals with it as well as others. And so, and young people are, are, again, wired differently than some of us seasoned veterans who've been around for a while. So for me, uh, and, and what I will tell you is that, that Wall Street and the stock market really values predictability too. And and as a corporate uh, veteran, I've learned that that unpredictability uh, causes chaos and and uh, you know is is an unstable foundation piece for propping up uh, financial bearings of of good companies that are that are performing well. So unpredictability is not good and and no one likes it. And yet <laughs> it has to be a central part of the advertising process because people are looking for the next new idea or concept or platform or uh, content piece or whatever, and they really, really want to be the first ones there. First mover advantage is very, very important in, in advertising. You know, after Craftsman came out with with lifetime warranty, I'm sure other tools followed that, but they were first and they benefited from that. FedEx was first to fly packages overnight, and that first mover advantage served them well throughout the years. So whoever's first usually will succeed and do really, really well. That does not always happen. And in this day and time, it's really, really hard to predict with any kind of confidence or certainty what's going to be the next big thing. Uh, and if you had told me years ago that podcasts would have taken off and been so great and other people are going to be able to eavesdrop and listen in on your conversations, I might have called you crazy. I really would have. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll never forget going to the network upfronts for the television networks. This is 20 years ago. And this is where advertisers buy their fall programming on, on network television. And CBS was pitching this concept called Survivor, and they were going to put strangers on an island or somewhere, and they were going to let them see who made it off the island, and they were going to vote people off the island. It's the craziest concept I'd ever heard of, and I remember flying back to Memphis saying, that show is never going to take off. It's going to be a bomb. The people that are buying ads on that are going to be so sorry, and they they are going to take a loss, and you know, I can't ever see me advertising on that show. It's going to be a terrible disaster, and I feel sorry for anybody involved in it. 
And of course, we all know what happened with Survivor. I think it's in its 28th season or something now, and it's doing really well. So what do I know, right? Back to those 10,000 hours of being an expert. I missed that one really, really badly. The point is, I, I don't think anyone's got any certainty about where things are headed. I, I think a lot of chaos usually results in conflict of some sort or another to bring it back. And I think people have a hard time uh, dealing with chaos in a collaborative environment. And yet sometimes chaos does require collaboration. And, and my team, I don't think has ever been closer, even though we're miles apart and we're on Zoom calls every week. We're starting to share more about our life. You know, you're being welcomed into people's kitchens and, and uh, dining dining rooms to, to their Zoom calls. We've had uh, two babies born to the AAF family since, since lockdown started. We've had uh, kids graduate from college. We've had a number of life events that we've all celebrated with Zoom calls. And, and we feel like we know a little bit more about everybody. The, the Zoom calls become the water cooler at the office. And so we stay up to date on everybody, what they're doing, how their life's going. And, and we try to celebrate all those special moments. Yeah, it's just, you know, now we do everything by Zoom instead of hanging out uh, in the break room. And, and I think that can still lead to some good results. You're less likely to get into a conflict with somebody over a Zoom call, I think, than, than you might be in person. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, let's hope <laughs> that is the case. So when you think about the future, the future of AAF, the future of advertising, and we want to have healthy work environments, what do you think people in your field need to do so that the organizations that they work for not only help people to be treated with dignity and respect, but that they thrive? Yeah, great question, Mary. I, th I think part of it comes down to respecting others' viewpoints and opinions. And, and again, nobody's going to get it 100% right. Uh, wherever this crazy world's headed. But you've got to listen to learned viewpoints and people who are educated in that world and, and really take that and then process it through your own mechanisms to see if it works for you or not. The biggest challenge for our industry is, you know, one of divisiveness and, and people going and splintering off into several different camps. Uh, we saw a little bit of that with NFT and crypto. You know, the, there were some agencies that were quick to say, we'll take payment in crypto. And I, I think they're probably not feeling good about that decision now there's a lot of things that are impacting the the advertising business that are what ifs and not in concrete or you know not 100 certain uh and i think that also just breeds a lot of discussion around who's right and who's wrong and and you know there's always got to be a foil there's always got to be a winner and and that often brings just natural conflict with all of that if you share the work and you have a great collaborative spirit it's not an I won or you won, it's a we won. Uh, and everybody can feel better about their part of the victory. I, I'm a big believer in team sports. I don't like individual sports as much because I, I love to see people operate as a team and, and pull together. Teams win, individuals win too, but, but it's not as special for me. Uh, and I love to see a great team play really well together, understand each other's skill positions, what they're good at, what they're not so good at, compensate for that and just do all the things you got to do to win. I think that's interesting because, you know, we think with sports winners are losers and then, but we also have this adage that you either win or you learn. And when you're doing it in a team environment, so whatever organization you work for, if you're working together and you quote unquote lose, it really can be a wonderful working environment to say, okay, this is what we're going to do differently instead of starting to play the blame game. And then well, what a waste of time right, to do that. Instead of saying, okay, let's take stock. Let's see what we're not going to do again. But what can we do to learn from this to move forward? 
Absolutely. You know, the, the book that I want to write, Mary, is is my lessons learned in 30 years of corporate America. And, and they are numerous. I think I'm up to 50 or so. And and some of them are yeah. small. Some of them are really big lessons. But um, and a lot of those came out of failures, things that just didn't go the way that we wanted them to go. And yet <laughs> those were the biggest lessons. You know, I, mm-hmm. I would like to say that your your education doesn't stop when you get out of college. Indeed, I think it really uh, ramps up a whole nother different level because then you've got to combine the real world street smarts with what you learned in school and what your intuition tells you and, you know, all those things. So I, I'm a huge believer in lessons learned out of, out of chaos theory and conflict are going to help make sure that you, A, don't make the same mistake twice, which is, you know, again, back to a waste of time. And B, you're able to impart that to other people as you're as you're mentoring them or bringing them up about, hey, I did it that way and it didn't work so well for me. Maybe you ought to think about it this way. And I never had anybody that would help me do that in my career journey. I, I didn't have strong mentors or people that would just tell me that might be a stupid idea and I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I really wish I'd had that. I probably would have been on a faster track than I was. Uh, I just had to make the mistakes myself and learn from them. And, and uh, those are powerful lessons because you remember those things and they, they hurt. They stick with you for a while, but uh, you move on and you and you dust yourself off and, and live to fight another day. That is so true. Uh, you write that book. I will definitely read it. Could you, <laughs> Steve? Could you leave us with one of those antidotes of you know, something that you learned from corporate America? I will. It's um, FedEx was entering was entering a NASCAR sponsorship, which is you know race cars and high-speed thrills and all that stuff. And and we had tasked the ad agency with coming up with a, a tagline for our campaign that we were going to do around the NASCAR races and the FedEx number 11 car. And, you know, we had one of the best ad agencies in the world, BBDO New York, working on this for weeks and weeks. And, and they kept coming back with these lines that just didn't seem to hit home. And so <laughs> it was it was a crazy situation where it was like a pretty simple assignment. You guys can't nail this. I'm really getting frustrated with you. And I'm, I'm thinking about maybe pulling the assignment, giving it to someone else or a different ad agency or whatever, because you guys clearly just don't get this. And you keep coming back with one bad idea after another. And I'm lamenting this over over a lunchtime conversation with actually one of our media uh, teams, the folks that actually buy the media for the television and the, the digital advertising that we do. And, and one of the people within the media team just instantly came up with a line. And they said, you know, at FedEx, Every day is race day. And that line just stuck with me. And I think it's still on the back of the race car. If you look at it now, that was 10, 12 years ago. And this was not a particularly creative person, but their mind was focused on the job at hand. And I don't know how long they've been sitting on that line, but but every day is race day, you know, is a great summation of, of the FedEx world. And it's also a pretty catchy little saying, you know, about why we're in NASCAR and why we're sponsoring this sport and this car. Um, and so I called them and said, stop work on that. We got a new line. We're going to go with this one. And then when they asked who came up with it, I had to tell them the media guy came up with it. But that's what we're going to go with. And so the lesson learned there is that, you know, all the skill players maybe run out of skill or lose uh, interest at some point and maybe seek help from others that aren't tasked with that particular assignment. And everybody's got a creative bone in their body, whether they know it or not. They just don't get to flex that muscle so often. And sometimes the best ideas come out of the most unlikely places. Oh, I love that. That is wonderful. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. 
Mary, I, I enjoyed uh, the conversation. I, I think what you're doing is very important work, and I, I think it's awesome that that you've taken this on and that you want to help people avoid conflict and deal with it in a, in a healthy way. I think that's really, really important. I think the the natural response to a lot of these things is to either run and hide or not deal with it and push it away. Uh, and I don't think any of that's very healthy. So I support all the work that you're doing and, and happy to be a small part of it here today and just really enjoyed the chat. Thank you so much. Have a good day, Steve. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. I really enjoyed our conversation. I have greatly benefited from being a member of the West Tennessee AAF chapter, both professionally and personally. So a heartfelt thank you for all that you are doing for the organization. Personal exciting news, my new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, is coming out August 1st. It's a book that highlights unprofessional behavior and says, don't do that. Do something instead in order to have a long and healthy professional career. I hope you check it out. And I'm sure I'll be talking a little bit more about it in the weeks to come. Conflict Managed is produced by Third Party Workplace Conflict Restoration Services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.